Last week we completed a series out of 1 Corinthians and it had a working title of Redefining Radical and, and uh, for the next two weeks before we start getting into the end of year and Vision Sunday and guest ministry and Christmas and all that stuff, um, the next two weeks are just going to be a bit of a teaser of what's to come as we look into January, February as well. And uh, it's a series that naturally follows on. You can't start the story and not complete it. And the, the natural way to go is to look at Second Corinthians. And uh, I have to say, I'm a, I've been a Christian for a long time now. I'm, coming, I'm just crossed over the 30-year mark as a believer. And I've never heard anybody preach this other than a couple of key passages. Sometimes not really taken in as full as the context either. So uh, we're going to go on a journey that I've not seen taken up before. And uh, the title for the series will come up a bit later on in the series. But we're today going to cross the bridge between the two letters that we have preserved in our New Testament. Now, you and I have 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our Bibles, right? Unless you've got something really different. Um, but we should all have in our, main, in, our, in our NRV Bibles in front of us, or whatever translation we use, 1 and 2 Corinthians. So we know that Paul was in Ephesus in Asia Minor there when he wrote 1st Corinthians, and he did that in 55 AD. Uh, you may remember that 1 Corinthians is most likely a second correspondence from Paul. All right, and um, the first one letter, the first thing we don't know all the details of, we don't have, we have very little clue about that, to be honest. At the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth there is only about three years old. And uh, most, if not all, of the congregation are no older than that in their faith. Paul was anticipating a second visit to go across to Corinth. But for now, he says he was going to, at the end of chapter of the first letter, he writes that he was going to stay put in Ephesus because there was both a great opportunity as well as a great opposition going on there. So he had a window of opportunity, although it was getting a bit hot in the kitchen there as well. Acts chapter 19 tells us about Ephesian ministry. He spent... A fair bit of time in, in Corinth, but he spent a, another fair bit of time in Ephesus. They're probably the two most major places he did his ministry, outside of staying in Rome for a long time for obvious reasons. Acts chapter 9 tells us some insight. In Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 19, sorry, Acts 19 tells us in Ephesus, there was a massive revival taking place. Significant things happening. Ex-pagans finding Christ and being radically changed. This fire that we hear, we hear about all this um, uh, magician's booklets and all these different things being burnt and being confiscated, getting rid of people cleaning house because their faith is going, I reject all this and I'm going to serve Jesus alone. Everything that looked like idolatry, everything that looked like another God went out the window, went in the fire. And it was quite a lot. There was... In today's economy, we're talking at least hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff being burnt. The result was that in amongst, all, amongst the joy of people finding Jesus, there's also a secular culture not being all that happy about it, and also a Jewish population not all that happy about it either. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that he faced death every day. He's writing from Ephesus. And he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. 
So he, even as he was writing that, knew that the window of opportunity was small and it called for immediate action. So he wasn't going back to Corinth. He was staying put when he had the opportunity. Things eventually broke out into a riot there. And Ephesus was a big town, big city. And it got stopped in its tracks because of the gospel. A riot broke out on account of the gospel. It stopped all of Paul's missionary endeavors. So we got out of there. There's been about as much as 18 months between the two Corinthian letters we have in our Bibles. In between those, we're roughly able to sketch some Corinthian church activity. Timothy, as promised, did arrive not long after 1 Corinthians had been been delivered to Corinth. Now, some scholars credit Timothy as going. Some will also go as far as saying Titus went as well in that time, in the the early get-go. After this, Timothy, or perhaps both of them, returned to Paul with news that things were not going well there. There still seemed to be opposition to Paul, but also it appears that outsiders might have been a problem uh, coming from outside of, of Corinth and actually stirring up more, people, more opponents of Paul from outside the city as well as those inside. Paul apparently then fast-tracks his second visit to Corinth. goes, gee, I better go, get over there and sort it out myself. This will be spoken of in 2 Corinthians as the painful visit. And there have been personal attacks made against him in that time. After that, Titus gets sent. He spends more time with them and the young pastor is also armed with what is spoken of in 2 Corinthians as a severe letter. From this comes reports of some repentance going on, although there still, still seems to be a rebellious minority. By this time, the second half of Acts 19 has come and gone. The riot broke out. And Paul has gotten away from Ephesus and he's ended up back up in Macedonia. It's somewhat safer, but in Acts 20 we also know that that some Jews have already plotted to kill him up there too. So even up in the relative safety of the Macedonian region, he's still looking over his shoulder. When we consider all that, it's safe to suggest that Paul is going to be in a pretty rough place by the time he puts pen to paper and writes what we have here today. It's been a tough 18 months for the church he founded in Corinth where they just haven't been getting their act together. 2 Corinthians is believed to be the fourth and fifth letters written roughly in that time to the city. There's a lot of to and fro going on there with tough issues being dealt with from a distance. Imagine trying to be the pastor of that church, trying to have a pastoral apostolic voice in a very limited, it's not by email. This is snail mail to the extreme. This is Australia Post today. (laughs) It's been a tougher 18 months for Paul as well. 
You know, I read a report from a doctor a while back trying to consider the state that Paul would be in. He suggested that the stress that Paul's body and mind, as described in these letters, if he endured all that, this would have messed him up in a pretty bad way. Liver damage, cardiovascular issues, anxiety, depression are all distinct possibilities. And yet in that headspace, there is a significant hope in all this. We know that Paul is under the pump. But we're about to read some strength that he's drawing. We're about to read that he's finding his strength in the right place. We're about to read that even if he's not out the woods, he's still finding victory. And he's showing us how we can carry the right attitude that we, that all of us as ministers of the gospel can learn and grow through. When faith gets tough, Paul shows us how we can find our way through this. That's a bit of a background. Today we're just going to look at the first 11 verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Let's read this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also, also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. Look at that. Almost reads like a psalm, doesn't it? I'm going to tackle this passage going back to front. I think it's best to establish some more of where Paul is at here. This is a place he clearly wants his audience to know. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. 
And he actually is hoping that his audience will resonate with where he's at. It actually looks here that Paul and those who ministered closest to him were actually at one point at the real, very real end of their rope. Just think about that. We were at the very end of our resources. We were at the very end of our resolve. We were, very, we were at, this is, we were, this is razor's edge stuff. We were suffering beyond imagination under duress that no one can even think about. He's writing this and then think about the audience that's receiving it. Their beloved apostle going through all this while they are pursuing a rather consumeristic Western church model. He talks about the struggles in the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus was. Where the riots were caused because of his gospel. Where the wild beasts were. That's not a lion's den. It refers to people and the lengths that they would go to in order to silence him. They were like vicious animals trying to silence him. There's suffering going on here that didn't make it to the pages of Acts 19. And there'd been suffering everywhere else he'd been as well. We remember that he's escaped solid beatings and would have been battered and bruised and probably limping a little as he walked into Corinth itself. In 56 AD, it's 18 months after 1 Corinthians, Paul is only a couple of years older than I am now. And he's gotten to the point where he could perceive his life ending. And he was getting that concept in stereo. There's a physical element. The place where he despaired of life itself. The bit where he may have stated plainly, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Even in his darkest moments, I don't know if I want to. If life is a fight, I'm really thinking about tapping out right now. And there is this spiritual element going on as well. We felt like we'd been sentenced to death. In eight to ten years, this would actually be his reality. But perhaps he's now taking stock of all the persecution that he'd been subject to. Perhaps he's praying things like, am I still going to be alive when Christ returns? He may well be in Ephesus coming to terms with the idea that this be faithful till I return thing may be a longer deal than what the church was first thinking. There's pressure from all sides. Even still in the relative safety of Macedonia still taking place. 
such a long stint of intense ministry has taken its toll on his mind, his body, his resolve, and I'd suggest from this passage even his theology. And I share all that because I would go as far as to say that in this room, Paul is not alone in that regard. Paul is by no means alone. I've been in church long enough to know that Paul is not alone like this. The struggle's real. We all deal with mental anguish. There is sickness and suffering in our midst and in, and, and in life. There are people facing challenges emotionally, spiritually, physically, even in this room. Some are facing elements of persecution. Family, workplace, classroom, more than just playful ribbing. Maybe there's very real pressure on your life to be silent about your faith. Some may be facing the issue of mortality for one reason or another. If this is you, you're not alone. From Paul down through the ages, you're not alone. In this room, you're not alone. In our experience collectively, you are not alone. And this morning, I'd love for you to lean in and take note of Paul's reinvigorated stand here. In these verses, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of, this, of where he's been. But he's also deeply and clearly obsessed with what he's found in that as well. You see, before we've read the nasty bit, the second half of that passage, we see first that his passage opens with a shout of praise. It was standard fare for a lengthy letter back then to be written. One with a greeting, two with a statement to, a statement or a prayer towards a deity. And Paul knew God. He knew Jesus. His statement would always be a statement of praise. And he's in a position after the journey to some degree. He's not out of the woods, but he's, he's very sad in some places. He will show himself to be fragile in some places in this letter, but we are all seeing, also seeing some triumph as well. We'll see that his personal theology has grown. His own convictions have strengthened. His understanding of God has been expanded. And he is utterly convinced of the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. And we see that in glimpses in the first part of what we've just read. Here's what got him through. This is what appears to have gotten him through in this passage. One, he's remembered and he's been strengthened first by the resurrection. Paul has remembered and has been strengthened by the resurrection. Verse 9 shows this. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
18 months prior, Paul corrected the doctrinal position of some of the Corinthians about the Christ who physically rose. He stated back then, if this didn't happen, then all of their faith efforts and their endeavors were futile. If Jesus didn't rise, neither were we. If he did, we will too. And our lives should be different because of what we anticipate that to be. And now he's putting personal legs on that theological position. When he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, things in Ephesus hadn't gotten all that hot yet. He could certainly tell a storm was brewing. But it hadn't hit yet. But then it came. Then he's had the trials spoken of here. And he's had to cling to his convictions. He's wanted everyone else to hold fast, to take hold of his gospel. That's what he actually says. He, he, he commends the Corinthians. You have received this gospel and you have taken your stand on this gospel. Don't leave this gospel. And that's precisely how he's living his life here. After all that he's gone through, in our days, we might even call it a faith crisis. After all of his struggles and trials, what's his conclusion? God raises the dead. In other words, Christ is risen. Therefore, the trials he was facing, the struggles he was fighting his way through, the message he was being compelled to take his stand on and proclaim, the life and the gospel that called to the life that he was called to, and even the threat of death that came with it, was all worth going through because of what would come at the end, the resurrection. Strengthened by the resurrection. Next, he takes hold of two key traits found in the character of God. Praise be to the Father of compassion. The King James puts it, the Father of mercies. This picture alone is awesome. You've got God as Father first up. The God that we serve, the God that we have access to through the risen Christ. is not as the ex-pagans in Corinth might have thought, a God to merely be appeased. But he's someone who loves us and relates to us as a perfect parent. He wants the best for us. He is deeply concerned for us. And he'll discipline us as appropriate as well. But all, everything will be done in love towards us. In addition to this, he's described as the perfect father of compassion or mercy. This word specifically speaks of having concern for the ills of another person. And we read in Ephesians 2.4 of the God who was rich in mercy. Why? Because he saw the ills of the ultimate ill of mankind even in that setting. The ultimate ill was separation from God. The ultimate ill was death through sin. But Ephesians tells us that he who was rich in mercy made us alive again in Christ. And the same word is used here today, the Father of mercies, the Father of compassion. 
I suggest that Paul's struggles and despair in Ephesus might have led to some really tough questions. God, I'm here. I'm going through this stuff. And I'm not seeing a lot of your concern going on around me right now. And yet he's able to escape. He's able to get to safety. He's seeing the delivering hand of God. And now, after the storm, he is seeing the God of mercies. He's seeing God's mercy play out. And he's tapping into that now. The good Father, the good Father of mercies, is deeply concerned for me. And I'm utterly convinced of that now. And my third point is, I reckon he knew this because of what he actually experienced in the process. Paul has experienced a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he has become absolutely, clearly captured, obsessed, smitten by this concept in this passage. In just a few verses, we see one word written over and over and over here. Comfort. The comfort we receive from God, the comfort that we can see take place in so many instances that he writes there. Comfort. As we look at what he's describing here, we can only see that this is possible by the Holy Spirit. As you've been in the house churches, then you'll be aware that the job description of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel involved what some translations call being a comforter. The work of the Spirit described by Jesus had some really interesting things about it. The Comforter will be at work backing up the witness of the disciples. The Comforter will be present when the persecutors come up and, and, the, pres- and the, the, the Comforter will be present giving them the words to say in, in response. The Comforter will be teaching and reminding the disciples of the things Jesus said. In the midst of that, he'll be a source of peace. He'll be a source of overall well-being. The stuff that will fuel our thoughts when we sing hymns like, It is well with my soul. The Comforter will guide them in truth. And I say all that because the words used in John's Gospel then and in 2 Corinthians in this passage are very, very closely related. They're really close forms of the same word. In John we see a multifaceted way of seeing what the Comforter, the Counselor, the Advocate would involve. And Paul is using slight variants of the word to give a wide scope of what the Spirit is providing him in the midst of his circumstances. In Paul's usage, he is experiencing consolation. In other words, when the grief and the depression sit in, he was being ministered to back to the right place. When he was down, the Spirit lifted him up. And he's experiencing exhortation. He's deeply aware that the Spirit is not just giving him a bit of an encouragement, you'll be fine, but he's urging him onwards. 
He's being reminded of his own message here. The resurrection gaining a whole new meaning. When he's asking God, where are you? Comfort is showing him the answer to that. The comfort that Paul describes here almost seems parental. Sometimes when I was a child, I would fall over and I'd skin my knee and the appropriate parental response was to hug me and tell me it was okay. Sometimes if I experienced grief as a child, it was appropriate for comfort to come and console me. When my favourite dog, Bear, disappeared. When we lost a relative and I didn't get it. It was also appropriate for comfort to tell me to get back up and keep moving too. My dad teached me how to ride a bike. If he gave me a big loving hug and said, it's okay, you never have to touch the bike again, what good would that have done me? Instead, he urged me, get back on, keep riding, son. Comfort has a multifaceted approach. Paul's experiencing that from the father of compassion. He's seeing again with the eyes of faith that the Spirit is active. He's seeing this comfort in the midst of all troubles. He's seeing this comfort in the midst of all suffering. He's seeing this comfort in all distress. He's seeing his own character get stronger in the midst of all the things he's going through because of the ministry of comfort he's receiving. And he is understanding that he is able to minister to others the same way. He can be an extender of this comfort because of the depth of what he's received from the Spirit. We're going to come to the end of our passage at this time and we're going to just worship the Lord. This is just a, a teaser of what is to come. But I want to take a moment just to perhaps reflect on this together. Reflect together. Is, is the story Paul is telling here, is the story that Paul is telling here, is it resonating with us? Is, is there elements of his story merging with our story today? Are the struggles that he would have been going through, are they struggles that might be similar to what we might be going through today? Are we struggling physically? Are we struggling emotionally? Are we struggling spiritually? Have we been going so hard that we haven't actually stopped and paused and found ourselves being refreshed in God again? Has it been all go, go, go? And has it been trial after trial after trial? Some of us, we may need to simply stop and go, I just need this ministry of God right now. I need to stop and pause. We're coming towards the end of a year and it's been an intense ministry year. 
as a church, we've run on a fair few cylinders this year. Maybe it's time to pause and to come back under that time of ministry from the Spirit. Maybe some things in your work life. Some of us here have some massive outputs in our jobs. Some of us do some really full-on things, giving out and giving out and giving out to other people. And it's a real struggle. Maybe you need to take some time to pause in the Spirit. Maybe there's been struggles in your own faith journey. Maybe it's time to stop for a bit. And perhaps ponder the things that Paul wants us to ponder here. One, the resurrection. We've come around the communion table today and we've remembered the resurrection. And and I love how Rod emphasised both the death and the resurrection. And that we remember it all until he comes. This is a reminder of our vow to be faithful to the returns. And yet sometimes being faithful to the returns can be a struggle at times. Maybe we've given out so much to the point that we feel like we're burning out. Maybe what Paul's journey here, maybe some of his journey needs to resonate with us. Maybe we need to tap into some of the things that he's shown us about the character of God and the ministry that that the Spirit brings. And some of us are going through some real struggles personally. In that, the one big word we need to find here is the God of comfort. Paul goes out of his way nearly nine or ten times, mentions the word comfort. And he presents a multifaceted approach to that. Comfort that consoles, that lifts us up. Comfort that urges us to move forward and keep going. Comfort that comes completely from the character of God. Comfort that comes from a compassionate Father who wants our very best. I want to take some time to pray for you right now. I'm happy to pray for people after the service too. But I wonder if we could perhaps bow our heads at this time and just... I just want to make this a point where it's just you and Jesus for a moment.